as the myth turns. Because mythology is the greatest soap opera of all time. With your cultural interns, Eris and Z. Interns because we're not professionals. And we're not getting paid. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of As the Myth Turns. I'm Z, and unfortunately I'm here by myself this episode due to the virus still being an issue. Eris Mack and I have had to stay separated, and um, in the meantime, I hope that everybody's not missing Pride too much. Uh, this week was supposed to be Pride, and because of the virus, it was also canceled. So, in honor, I thought that we would do an episode about queer icons and role models from history, because, you know, history, it uh, doesn't always paint a pretty picture, and um, sometimes it, it, a lot of the times, a lot of the times, let's be honest, a lot of the times, it leaves really amazing people out of the narrative, or it hides parts of them that would be really, really important and really nice to know. So I think we're going to start off with um, Marsha P. Johnson, who is most famously known for throwing the first brick at the Stonewall Inn riots. For those who don't know, the Stonewall Inn riots were a series of protests, or riots, depends on, on who you ask, that really took us, took the U.S. from a um, largely anti-gay legal system to, like, which included police raids, like people would come and arrest people just for being gay, which, I don't know, I think a lot of people don't know that that was a thing in American history because I don't know America doesn't like to teach the side the dark side of them of themselves so I know people that don't know that that was a thing so anyways um but so she she threw the first brick and it took us from being where it's illegal to be gay took it to be illegal to be married to a same-sex partner which the supreme court uh struck down all the state bans prohibiting same-sex marriage uh in 2015 so that's great for us. Unfortunately, it took so long, but pretty great that we've gotten there. Anyways, Marsha P. Johnson, she was a transgender black woman, um, an activist, sex worker, uh, drag performer. She even modeled for Andy Warhol, who is pretty famously known for taking portraits of uh, celebrities and presidents. Unfortunately, she was mostly homeless throughout her life, and um, uh, which stemmed from her being transgender, I, I believe, and um, from suffering from mental illness. She died at 46 under murky circumstances, quote, murky circumstances. It was Pride 1992. There were a few people that had witnessed some men uh, yelling slurs at her, racial and homophobic, and, um, you know, saying that they were going to get her. And then later that night, um, a person was heard saying that they had beaten um, a black transgender woman. But then the next day, it turned out that Marsha P. Johnson um, was found floating in the Hudson River with blunt force trauma to the back of her head. But police at the time ruled it uh, a suicide, largely because, I mean, they cited her history of mental illness um, as a reason but they didn't really do their job, <laughs> um, which ha unfortunately happens a lot in the communities of color and um, the LGBT communities. And um, Marsha P. Johnson just happened to fall into both of those. So she really wasn't done justice in the investigation of her death. But in November 2012, it was reopened and classified, uh, her death was classified as undetermined. And um, I believe I believe it's still open, but we would not have the um, the essentially the world that we or the the country that we would today if it wasn't for Marsha P. Johnson 
if um, she hadn't thrown that that brick at the the demonstrations, then, you know, the riots wouldn't have happened. Things wouldn't have been able to change. She's really not given the credit that she she deserves. But yeah, so we have we have a transgender black woman to thank for um, pride. And I think that's super amazing, especially considering what's going on right now um, with the Black Lives Matter movement. So the next person just to totally segue. I don't have a good segue. I'm nervous. Um, I'm, I haven't ever done this by myself alone and I feel so sad. Um, <laughs> anyways, so without us further ado, up next is Florence Nightingale, who lived from 1820 to 1910. I picked Florence um, because she is a pretty well-known figure, I think, especially in my field of work. Um, I work in the health field, and so she's she's pretty well-known. She's the founder of modern nursing. She's also known as the lady with the lamp. She would, during the Crimean, 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 the war? Uh, that's embarrassing. Um, she published over 200 works about medicine while helping soldiers in the Crimean War. Crimean War? God, I feel like I'm saying it wrong. I'm, I'm sure I am. Anyways, she is the person who kind of discovered that keeping things clean was good uh, and it was healthy. It was more healthy than what they were doing, which was just leaving people in filth and not washing their hands. She uh, she never married. She is known to have written, um, quote, I have lived and slept in the same beds with English countesses and Prussian farm women. No woman has excited passions among women more than I have. And people are still like, well, she never married, so she might have been asexual. Who knows? I'm just like, like, I feel like, like she straight up was like, I'm a lesbian. Like, I love women more than other women love women. <laughs> and anyways, I, I don't know. Uh, you know what? And that happens. Like, how often, for those of you that was on Tumblr in the, the 2000s, the, the mid 2000s, um, it was like really popular to pull up quotes from um, like famous poets and, and stuff that was talking about, you know, like, oh, I love you more than the moon and the sun and the world itself. And, and then historians were like, they were really good friends. <laughs> and uh, anyways, I just feel like Florence Nightingale falls into that category. But founder of modern nursing, huge old lesbian, lady with the lamp, you know, good old Florence Nightingale. And then change it up and do a dude. Mac actually picked this one because I didn't know. I mean, there's so there's so many LGBT plus icons to pick from in history that that they're their sexuality or their their gender orientation, whatever, has been kind of put off to the side in favor of what's preferred in the mainstream, I guess. So I was I was asking, I was like, what are some of the best ones that, that we could pull up? And Max's favorite was James Whale, um, who lived 1889 to 1957. He directed Frankenstein, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, The Old Dark House, lots of other ones. Those are his, his most famous ones, though. He was an openly gay man in Hollywood um, in the 1920s and 30s, which was like unheard of, totally, totally unheard of. And he wasn't like, I don't know, his he has a, a, a friend who who was quoted, I didn't write the quote down because, you know, I, I always fuck up somewhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's, he had said something along the lines of that, that James Whale wasn't like out and proud, but he was out and he didn't hide it. So I don't know. I think that was like an apologist kind of way of being like, he's gay, but he's not like super gay. But like, how many people are gay, but not super gay? You know what I mean? Like, I'm gay. I'm super gay, even though I'm marrying a man. But I'm, you know what I mean? Anyways, okay. I'm off track. I need Eris to get me back on track. Um, so James Whale's story is kind of cool. Um, he was an officer in World War One. He was um, a POW. And while he was captured, he 
realized his love for drama for like the theater and for movies. And uh, he lived with a man named David Lewis, like as a couple, which is again, totally unheard of in, in that time. But like, they, I mean, they lived together. And they were not ashamed about it. They didn't hide it. They weren't like, oh, we're buddies and bros. Like, like they, they were like, yeah, we a couple. Um, and they were, they lived together from 1930 to 1952. In the 1970s, it became really popular for um, uh, film historians and whatnot to read into uh, James Whale's movies. And uh, they allege that there's lots of gay subtext in it. But it's kind of one of those things that like, we draw from our own experiences when we create things. So, you know, you can only you can only put so much emotion into a thing if you felt that emotion. And so if he'd never like, one of the really common things is that um in frankenstein i guess there's a scene where he pulls one of the main character one of the main characters pulls another character away from his his wife his his night with the wife to go create life without procreation and so like there were a few people that were like oh that mean that means he's he wants people to be gay because he put it in this film but at the same time like one that's just the story and two like another aspect of of what they said was that the relationship with the two male characters was no different than the relationship with the male and the female character, which was the husband and wife. And I really should have watched this movie. I'm going to be honest, I didn't because I thought I could do this without doing it. But then anyways, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm fucking up um, and I'm not even drunk. So anyways, so it's thought that the, the relationship between the two male characters is no different than the relationship between the male and the female character who are supposed to have like some kind of love interest thing going on. And that is that means that, you know, he was putting in the gay subtext. But I mean, if he treated women just like his friends and he had male friends, because you can have male friends and be attracted to men and not like want to sleep with them. You know what I mean? Anyway, oh God, I'm I'm like just sticking my foot in my mouth and I apologize so much. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's really awkward without Aries. And I just want you guys to know that I miss her and I miss Mac and it's not the same without them. And I know I still get to talk to them on social media, but you guys should tell them how much I miss them and tell them that I'm struggling and I love them. Anyways, um, <laughs> Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move on because words. Okay. Then there's Roberta Cow. Um, Roberta Cow lived from 1918 to 2011. She was um, one of the first people to have gender confirmation surgery done. Um, and um, she had this done by the guy who was, is kind of considered the founder of um, plastic surgery, which is pretty cool. And I forgot to write his name down because, you know, again, I thought I could do this and uh, I fucked up. Um, <laughs> so Roberta was a fighter pilot in World War II. She she was an instructor. She flew a Spitfire PR-9. Um, and then it, and in one instance, it malfunctioned at 31,000 feet over France. She passed out and the plane continued a slow descent for an hour before she regained consciousness and then flew it back to base. Um, at that like that low altitude which is freaking crazy and she like she made it without being like shot down or anything which is also super crazy eventually she became a pow after um the engine got shot off of her plane in a different instance and while she was there she taught um her fellow inmates auto engineering classes to like to help them out so that whenever they they would leave one to give them something to do something to look forward to like oh when i get out i can you know i can be a mechanic or what have you, and um, just to kind of help boost morale. And and her gender confirmation surgery was done illegally. Then she went to a gynecologist, 
and had the gynecologist pronounce her in intersex so that she could change her birth certificate to read female, which is just so freaking cool. I don't know. She just like, you know, she, especially in that time period, you know, and she, she only died, she died in 2011. So she was alive relatively recently and, and was able to see the progress that we have made in the world. And I just, I think that's really sweet too, to, to make these changes, to take these stands and to be able to see uh, the results of it, I think is pretty phenomenal. Kind of like Marsha P. Johnson, how she was involved in the Stonewall Inn, and then she was able to attend Pride itself. And I just think that's pretty phenomenal that she got to basically see the celebration of, of her actions. That's pretty cool. I guess that's all I have. I know this episode is super short. Um, I super expected to get through this um, a lot slower, I guess, but I was so nervous. I think I talked super fast, so I apologize to your ears. And... Um, I'm sorry for bemoaning um, not being with my friends. I'm sure that's not what you guys came to the episode for. And yeah, I don't know. I hope that you guys still get to enjoy what would have been Pride Weekend, even though we're not having Pride in most places. I think all places Pride was canceled, but I don't, I see, I, I didn't read that anywhere, so I can't, I can't say that for a fact, but that would be my guess. Also, I don't know, because this just popped into my head just now and I have ADD. Danny DeVito went to Pride one year, I think last year. So that's pretty cool. I mean, hey, you know, if you needed another reason to like Danny DeVito, he'd he go to Pride. And if Danny DeVito's listening to this, I love you. You're super cool. And I hope that you're doing well. Anyways, thanks for listening, guys. Again, sorry for the awkwardness. That's just me. Okay, bye. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Eris, and I'm here to talk about uh, my girl Julie Dagny. Um, I'm probably, <laughs> it's very French, um, so that's probably not exactly how you're supposed to pronounce that. Anyway, um, so she, so she is one of my own personal heroes. Um, she was born around 1673. The exact date isn't really known um, because she was a daughter to the secretary of King Louis XIV's, like basically his horse guy. Um, so either those records have been lost or they weren't well kept to begin with. Um, her dad was a swordsman. So he trained her um, along with the court pages in like fencing and other kinds of like athleticism. And she was, uh, she was, she was kind of a handful, even at a young age. In fact, like, here's the thing, all the things I'm going to tell you, spoilers, obviously, she, she, I mean, obviously she's dead, uh, cause she was born in 1673. She dies at the age of 33. So all of the things, the things I'm about to tell you happened between the span of, you know, sometime around post puberty to 33. So like, like hold tight kids this is gonna get nuts anyway so around the age of 14 she became her dad's boss's mistress um something it was vaguely political too like his dad like her dad was gonna get reassigned so she's just like if i sleep with my dad's boss he will have to keep my dad on um so she does that and then when dad finds out he's like oh my God, my daughter is 14. What the hell? Um, and so he decides it's time to find you a husband and maybe to settle your ass down. So um, she marries, you know, at daddy's behest, this guy, like this real boring dude named uh, Monsieur de Maupin. 
And uh, like, he's super boring. They're both assigned almost immediately after the wedding. There's even reports that he left literally the day after the wedding to go to the the French countryside to collect taxes for the king. And you know, new wife, she gets shipped off with him. She decides that he is really boring. So she runs away with her fencing teacher, Saran. And like, now they don't have a lot of money, her being 14 and Saran being just basically like a tutor for hire. So they, uh, they feed themselves and they like get money for themselves by giving fencing demonstrations at fairs and uh so she starts doing like all of these duels and stuff and a lot of people like uh don't think that she's really a woman so she starts doing these duels basically mostly undressed to be like i'm a lady look at these tits um and they're like oh my god a woman who knows how to fence here's the thing julie was an amazing fencer anyway so she's like Woo! She's like doing the whole French thing. Um, she ends up, she actually, you know, because she needs a new hobby, she starts singing and she ends up getting hired by the Marseille Opera. And, uh, and she, you know, whatever, cast or whatever. This one young lady in the audience, uh, immediately falls in love with her. And Julie and her have an affair. And like, I mean, they're like, they're like dating. They're like girlfriends. Now, the girl's family, uh, sorry, her name has been lost to history. Her, the girl's family, Julie's girlfriend's family is like, ooh, we don't want our daughter dating an opera singer, never mind a chick. So they send her to a nunnery. And Julie is like, nope, time to break my girlfriend out. So she sneaks inside the nunnery and then sets the whole damn place on fire to break her girlfriend out. Julie is sentenced to death in absentia by the French parliament because that's really not something super cool to do. But... The French parliament did not believe that it was Julie who did it because they couldn't believe that a woman could break her girlfriend out of a convent and then burn it to the ground. So they actually sentenced a Mr. de Maupin, probably her husband, who knows? Anyway, and I just want to note that this, she's not even 17 yet when this happens because anyway, um, so sometime in between there, girlfriend's family was um, super not pleased. But anyway, girlfriend had to go back to her family. And Julie decides I need to leave town, you know, to heal my broken heart. And it's sometime during here that she bumps into a young dude on the street by uh, the Comte d'Albert. Now he he challenges her to the duel. And then she kicks his ass so bad. He's like laying bleeding and she feels bad for him and the nurses him back to health and they're BFS forever. So I think that's really neat. Um, anyway, but yeah, so when she was 17, she had, she not, she wasn't tricked. They tricked, she and her current boyfriend under her, uh, she started taking vocal lessons from this dude in Paris and then dated like his one of other's apprentices or maybe his son i don't know anyway together they tricked the opera into letting her audition for the paris opera of which she was then hired and um this was when she was 17 so all of this other stuff happened before she was even 17 and so she appeared in all of the opera's major productions from 1690 to 1694 and this is when she gained the like celebrity name la mapin like she was famous and, and people just loved her, except for the fact that she had a tendency to, uh, first of all, she would sleep with all your husbands and all your wives. Um, so that was, <laughs> that was something that eventually Paris got real tired of. Like some shenanigans is okay, but like 
Julie shenanigans was legendary. Um, it, there was one story uh, it, during this time when she she went to you know really fancy dress masquerade ball and she kept kissing ladies and so a bunch of dudes tra- challenged her to a duel of which um, like she went outside and fought three of them at once at the same time kicked all their asses but. Hey, so in Paris, duels were illegal at this time, so she literally had to flee. So thus ended uh, temporarily her operatic career, um, because she had to go and leave. Um, anyway, and so then she spent some time working as a maid to this countess who she like hated, so she put like radishes in her hair. Um, and then she had to like leave that job because you're not supposed to embarrass the boss like that. Anyway, um, but yeah, so. So she goes, you know, goes on lots of other kinds of adventures or whatever. And, um, and then here near the end of her life, uh, 1703, she falls in love with Madame de Marseille de Florenzac. Um, supposedly like, like, I mean, it's written down the most beautiful woman in France. Um, and, uh, like poets and stuff were like not so about her, but so they were together in some aspect. I will say, here's the thing. It's real easy to read between the lines because when you have lots of accounts of saying she kissed this lady or ran off with this lady or broke this lady out of a convent and then burnt her to the ground, it's like real easy to tell what's going on. But of course, this is like, you know, very early turn of the century, 1700s and like, you know, late 1600s, 1690s. And so there's a lot of people who are like, they couldn't have really been lovers they were just friends which is wrong it's just it's just wrong that's just there's a lot of academics who believe that gay people only existed at you know starting in 19 you know 60s that like and that's that's wrong (laughs) there anyway uh that's a whole other soapbox that I do not have time to record on. Anyway, so she and Madame de Marquise de Florensac, they ran off together to Brussels because it's, you know, not really, like a lady is supposed to have friends, but not friends she likes to smooch. <laughs> um, anyway, so, but they lived for a cu- only a couple of years until um, de Florensac died of a fever. And so, like, distraught and, like, brokenhearted, Julie then actually went and she entered a convent. Um, I'm assuming not the one that she burned down to the ground. But there, that's when she died of, uh, at age 33. And actually, there's this quote from one biographer of her. She destroyed by an inclination to do evil in the sight of her God and fixed intention not to, after which he claims her body was cast upon the rubbish heap. And that was by Gilbert in 1932. Um, so yeah, she, uh, she was a person who really like, she did her own thing. Damn society. Um, if you insulted her, she was gonna attack back um she went after what she wanted and she went after what she liked and she didn't really care what anybody thought now obviously she got in a lot of trouble for it you know um constantly getting in duels and putting her life in danger and then then also the running away like she did not leave like her running away was not romantic like it was a very difficult and hard life of which she you know oftentimes didn't have enough to eat so there there's something to be said there but like I admire the fact that in this time of which it was, I mean, there were laws against women doing any of this. Um, and she was just like, eh, laws were made by people and people can break. <laughs> and I, I really admire that. Um, and I try to, 
I try to, I just, I, sometimes I think in my own life, what would Julie do? <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe try to emulate that a little bit. So anyway, so that's, that's my, that's, that's my pride hero. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so this, uh, hopefully this episode doesn't come out late cause I'm recording this late, but we, uh, we'll see. Hopefully you'll see us Friday at noon. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening and we will catch you next time. Bye. And don't forget to like, 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 and subscribe to As the Myth Turns on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and email us at asthemythturns at gmail.com. Transcripts for this episode can be found at our WordPress site, asthemythturns.wordpress.com. Our theme song is called Fretless by Kevin McLeod. You can find this song and all his others at incompetech.com.